we have a new free book for Human Action Podcast listeners, Dr. Guido Holzman's How Inflation Destroys Civilization. Learn how inflation isn't only making us poorer, it's harming our culture, mental well-being, and the moral foundations of civilization itself. Get your free copy today at mises.org slash HAPod free. This is the Human Action Podcast, where we debunk the economic, political, and even cultural myths of the days. Here's your host, Dr. Bob Murphy. Brian, welcome to the Human Action Podcast. Thank you for having me. I've been looking forward to this. Yeah, me too. Me too. So for those who don't know you, because in these episodes, we don't separately pre-record an introduction. Can you just explain uh, you know, what Santiago Capital is and your position and what you guys do? Yeah, sure. So Santiago Capital is a wealth management firm. Uh, you know, I've been in this business for about 25 years, started in the late 90s with a firm called DLJ. Um, that was purchased by Credit Suisse. So I was with Credit Suisse for 10 years. Left there shortly after the global financial crisis uh, to work for an independent uh, registered investment advisor and along the way set up my own registered investment advisor. Um, so I've been in kind of the wealth management business for you know the last couple of decades, and I kind of focus on the big picture, a lot of macro-related themes, and you know that's kind of I think that's kind of how we met uh, then through the the debate of the dollar a few weeks ago. Okay, yeah. Um, well, can you speak to what's that map over your shoulder? Because I know that's relevant. Oh, sure. So yeah, so my company's called Santiago Capital, and the name comes from. The lead character in my two favorite books is named Santiago, and then this is a map of the Camino de Santiago, which is a ancient pilgrimage route across the north part of Spain that I hiked back uh, shortly before I started my career on Wall Street in 1999. So um, it's kind of become a big part of my life, I guess. Okay, great. So yes, as Brent alluded to, uh, he and I recently participated. We were on opposite sides uh, of the debate. Uh, Zero Hedge hosted it. It was um, Michael Every and Brent were arguing that the dollar would still be the world's reserve currency, what, by 2030. And uh, Jim Rickards and I took the opposite side to, to make a case that, that no, it, it will not be. And uh, there was a particular exchange in that debate where, and when we get to the point here in the, in the discussion, folks, we'll play the clip. Um, and I just I asked Brent to come back on just to have a more careful going back and forth because I I think that's it's a central point of, of the dispute is the the role that the euro dollar plays in all this. But before we get into all that stuff, Brent, you are among other things known for the dollar milkshake theory. Can you explain sure. what that is? And and the, yeah. the point I assume is not that you think that the U.S. dollar is so strong that at one point you'll be able to get milkshakes for a dollar again. That's not what what. Well, is that that'd be nice, wouldn't it? Um, but uh, okay, so because I've been in this wealth management business for for a number of years, I've always worked with other individuals. Um, I, I, you know, I don't manage institutional capital. I don't, uh, you know, I, I don't run a big uh, endowment fund. And so the people on the other side of the table for me are typically very smart, uh, but they're individuals who are not necessarily versed in financial lingo or monetary policy. And so I've always had to try to figure out simple ways to explain fairly complex topics whether it's related to geopolitics or monetary policy or market dynamics. And so I came up with the dollar milkshake theory as a framework for explaining how I thought a sovereign debt and currency crisis would play out. And I started talking about this uh, in 2018. So I've been thinking that we would have a a crisis uh, related to debt uh, for several years now. Uh, I'm somebody who believes that debt has consequences. Um, and I think uh, so. So I think when those consequences start to be felt, that the dollar milkshake play would would ex- help explain how that would play out. And so, and I'll t- I'll tell you what those dynamics are here in a second. But I, but I think what what I said back in 2018 was that in the years ahead, we would have a situation where the dollar would rise, where gold would rise, and U.S. equities would rise, uh, dis- and, and and we would have a situation where. Um, we would have a currency crisis and a sovereign debt crisis. Now, we sort of had a currency crisis a couple of years ago. Not really. It started to get into the early stages of one. We haven't had a sovereign debt crisis, um, so to speak. Um, but really what I think happens, and what, it, what has happened every other time 
you know, over the last several decades is whenever a crisis happens, uh, the, the global monetary authorities, the governments, uh, however you want to define the powers that be, have responded by increasing the monetary base or doing bailouts, doing QE, fiscal stimulus. You know, basically, they, they, they provide additional liquidity to the system. And my thesis is that if and when that happens again, they will, they will react in the same way. Uh, but when a crisis happens, because the, the world is on a U.S. dollar standard, it's no longer on a gold standard, it's on a U.S. dollar standard, I think the U.S. dollar will be seen as the relative safe haven. Even though the dollar might be losing value in overall purchasing terms, I think it will rise versus foreign currencies. And that ha- the fact of the U.S. dollar rising versus foreign currencies has dramatic impact on asset prices all over the world. And so what I think will happen is that the U.S. will be seen as the relative safe harbor in the storm. And the milkshake comes from, it, the milkshake comes from a movie called There Will Be Blood. And in this, world, in this movie, Daniel Day-Lewis played this evil, uh, ruthless oil executive. And he was negotiating a piece of land with his neighbor. And the neighbor was saying, if you buy the land, you can have all the oil underneath it. And Daniel Day-Lewis said, well, I don't really need to buy your land. All I have to do is stick a straw down on my side of the fence, and it'll reach underneath the fence, and it'll drink your oil. It'll drink, and he says, I'll drink your milkshake. And I think that is largely what has happened since COVID, and I think that would be largely what would happen if we do have another crisis. I think the rest of the world and the U.S. will respond by you know, printing more money, doing bailouts, but I think that will largely get sucked up into the United States and into the dollar uh, for, for many reasons, some of them deserved, some of them probably not deserved. Uh, but that's the way I see it playing out. And as a result, I think U.S. assets will rise versus other uh, assets around the world. So that, that's the dollar milkshake. And it, becomes, it kind of becomes this vicious cycle where higher dollar begets higher dollar. Um, you know, a lack of liquidity overseas uh, becomes a perpetual negative cycle. And we get kind of this blow off acceleration to the upside. And then I think everything eventually gets reset. Okay, great. So even within that framework, the the one part I, I don't fully follow your logic is, so I get how, yeah, if there's a global crisis, people run to safety. We saw that in 2008. Like for example, Peter Schiff was pretty good, not pretty good. He was very good uh, in like 2005, 2006, 2007, there's YouTube compilations of him calling, you know, what's going to happen with the real estate markets. But he also was short that my understanding is he, he was short the dollar going into the 2008 crisis because he understandably thought, well, gee, in a world where the Federal Reserve has grossly mismanaged things and caused all this monetary inflation that, you know, spawned all these problems, surely when the chickens come home to roost, the dollar is going to fall. And yet that isn't what happened. And I, I think, you know, you, you could say, well, yeah, because the thing that he wasn't building into the forecast was everyone around the world panicking and rushing to treasuries. So I get sure. that. But even there, the stock market, U S stock market certainly took a beating at least temporarily. Yeah. And, so, and so what, what am I missing? Like I understand gold well, so, going up and yeah. the dollar strengthening against other currencies, so, but why well, would the U S stock I, market go up? Well, and th- this is probably the most debated part of, of the thesis. Um, okay. And listen, I, I fully admit I could be wrong, it's, but this mm. is kind of how I see it. Is I, I think what's going to happen is if we have a sovereign debt crisis, that will be the repudiation of countries' treasuries, not just U.S. treasuries, but treasuries all over the world. And I th- a- a- In other words, we get into a situation where global interest rates are rising, um, some of them for inflationary reasons, some of them for counterparty reasons. And as money starts to leave those sovereign bonds, that would force other currencies or the governments to have to print more of their currencies or provide more stimulus, provide more, you know, QE, however you want to define it. But I think what happens is even that, that potentially is happening in the United States as well. In other words, interest rates may be rising in the United States as well. But in that environment, as money is leaving bonds, it has to go somewhere. Um, and as, it, as, as people sell bonds, global bonds all over the world, and they look for another place to go, I think gold would probably be a beneficiary of that. 
perhaps Bitcoin would be a beneficiary of that. But I think large cap U.S. equities would be a beneficiary of it as well. So I think in, in some ways, U.S. blue chip equities would become the new treasuries. Okay, great. If you don't want to answer this, that that's fine. But that's fine. like in terms of the the three prongs of what the dollar milkshake theory is, at least in its original form, are you saying you're more confident that in a global sovereign debt crisis, the U.S. dollar vis-a-vis other fiat currencies and the U.S. dollar, or sorry, in gold versus all those currencies and even the U.S. dollar would rise, but you're not as confident that the stock market is that a so the way I think it happens is I think initially equities do fall. Okay. But I, but I think, in, you know, just like in 2008 they fell and just like in 2020 they fell. But I think the response to that would be very similar to, the, to what happened after QE and what – sorry, what happened after COVID and what happened after 2008 is that all that stimulus that gets injected back into the markets pushes U.S. equities higher. Except this time, I think it could be that U.S. equities arise alongside not only U.S. interest rates, but interest rates around the world. Okay, so just to be clear, it's not so much the crisis per se that causes the U.S. stock market to bounce. It's the response to the original crisis that then fuels it. That's right. But in okay. that, but in that, but, but, but what has typically happened is in that response, the dollar has fallen. And I'm not sure that that will happen this time. I think we will get into a, a situation where U.S. equities are rising along with the DXY going higher and along with gold rising along with it. So, so think, think, of, think of the dollar rising versus all other currencies, U.S. equities rising versus all other global stock markets, and gold rising versus all other currencies. It's kind, okay. of a rel- it's kind of a relative argument. I, I think the U.S. on a relative basis will outperform the rest of the world in a sovereign debt crisis. Th- there's no way I will get this 100% right. I know for mm-hmm. sure I won't get it 100%. Right. That's the only thing I'm sure of is that I won't be totally right. But I think if I get it largely right or even a little bit right, which I think I have so far, it has helped me kind of navigate the craziness of the markets. Human Action Podcast listeners, you can enter in to win free attendance to an upcoming Mises Institute event. 2024 marks the 75th anniversary of Mises' great economic treatise, Human Action. And in honor of this occasion, the Mises Institute is holding a special conference on May 16th through the 18th. Scholars from around the world will be there, including Guido Holzman, Bob Murphy, Joe Salerno, Tom DiLorenzo, and more. Visit Mises.org slash HARaffle to enter into a drawing for free admission to the event. If you're a student, scholarships are also available at mises.org slash HA24. Now back to the action. Okay, great. Um, so then switching now to the zero hedge debate, and obviously folks, well, I'll put links to all this stuff as well as, I, Brent, I know you've got like a, a, a highly viewed YouTube video of you get laying out the dollar milkshake thing and going through with the, was it the yeah. Highlander? Is that the other movie yeah, reference yeah, you yeah. make? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so that, that's a good one. You know, people can, well, do you want me to explain? Let me, let, let yeah, me explain that real sure. since you brought it. So, so I've used the Highlander reference as a way to explain the theory because I've had many people tell me that in a sovereign debt crisis or in some kind of a global crisis, gold will do very well. And my point has always been, I think gold will do very well. I think gold will ultimately win the day. It will be the last man standing. But I think before that happens, the dollar will crush every other currency. And so I've used the Highlander reference, which is this you know, movie from the 80s about these immortals where they go around the world fighting each other. And um, I've used the Kurgan. The Kurgan was the bad guy. And so I've, I've referenced him as the dollar. And then McLeod was the good guy. I've referenced him as gold. And in the final showdown, I think McLeod will beat the Kurgan. I think gold will beat the dollar. But leading up to that very end of the movie, the Kurgan ran around cutting off all the other immortals' heads. And so I think that's largely what will happen here. I think the dollar will crush every other fiat currency. But in the ultimate showdown with gold, I would expect gold to win. Okay, great. Um, and, and actually, I, I think I mentioned this to you when we were you know, down there in uh, Florida, Brent, that when someone originally sent me and said, hey, what do you think of this? And it was, you know, your presentation of the dollar milkshake theory. I wrote back something like, 
I'm not saying he's right, but you know th that's entirely plausible. I have no problem yeah. with what this guy laid. So you get in terms of a scenario of how the events unfold. In fact, I've even said a while ago, you know, if you push, if, if you make me prognosticate that I thought, okay, there'd be another crisis eventually. So you know, up in the uh, like late '90s, early 2000s, the dot com, you know, tech stocks crashed. Okay, and then in the 2008 crisis like household name investment banks went under. And then I thought, okay, maybe the next crisis, you're going to see countries going under. Yeah. And then, you know, clearly the Fed's going to be like, you know, doing swaps with the ECB or whatever and, and bailing out the euro or whatever. And so I think the Fed would, and then I thought, yes, then finally the, you know, the final battle would be then even, you know, once yeah. the, the Fed has bailed out the whole world, then the last shoe to drop would be the dollar crashing. So, right. That sounds right. like, you know, sort of like your Highlanders. That's, yeah. I, okay. That's, that's right. That's right. Okay. So um, so I guess as far as the, the zero hedge stuff, so I think an important distinction to be made, whether in practice it, it matters or not, is um, I am not so much, like what I was doing at that zero hedge debate was not saying that I thought the dollar was going to be lower versus the yen or the euro 10 years from now. I think it's possible it does strengthen against them even amidst it still shedding, you know, its share of its role in global commerce. Yep. And so, uh, you know, now that I'm, I'm bringing up that distinction, are you, you know, you know is, is your thesis, are you more sure that the dollar is going to strengthen against the yen and the euro five, 10 years, from, you know, compared to today versus five, 10 years, or is it, so, you get what I'm asking? Yeah. So, so the timing of course is the hardest part. Right? Mm -hmm. I, I think everybody would agree that the timing is the hardest part. The main point that I have wanted to get across with this thesis is that regardless of the timing, if and when we get into a situation where the dollar is no longer the global reserve currency, the process by which the dollar is no longer the global reserve currency will see the dollar go much higher before it goes ultimately much lower and it's no longer the global reserve currency. And it could be that going higher is what causes it to no longer be the world reserve currency because, again, the powers that be would probably have to come in and do some kind of new plaza accord or some kind of a system reset or a redenomination of everything. But I think it's the crisis of the dollar going higher, which is what would then perpetuate or would, the, would what then eventuate the dollar no longer being the global reserve currency. But I do not think we can transition from the dollar being the global reserve currency to the dollar not being the global reserve currency without great volatility along the way. And I think in that great volatility, that's what sees the dollar higher rather than lower. So I do not believe that we could have a situation where the dollar just gets worth less and less and less and less and less over a, let's call it a 20 year period to where then it's no longer the global reserve currency. I, I, I don't rule it out. It's not impossible, but I think that is about the least likely event in my opinion. Okay. Uh, so that's interesting. So it sounds like not only, you know, are you comfortable with that distinction, but you're actually building that in. You're saying, yeah, even along the way to achieve what Jim Rickards and I were saying is the ultimate end game here where we, you know, we're going to get to a point where the dollar is no longer the world's reserve currency. Your point is the likely way to achieve that is going to be involved the dollar strengthening. Correct. It, so, okay. So maybe I misunderstood the rhetorical point you were making. So just for the folks at home, Brent yep. here, why don't we pause? I'll play this short clip. Okay. It's, it's, it's the one Brent from, um, you know, that I sent you ahead of time yep. that I included in the previous episode of the human action podcast where you, you're I watched it. I sort watched of, it. yeah. Cross-examining, uh, if that's the word Jim. So here folks, we'll go ahead and, and play a clip. How does the rest of the world that owes 30 trillion, 50 trillion, depending on how you calculate on balance sheet or off balance sheet numbers, how do they lose $50 trillion in assets and not suffer? I never said they lose 50 trillion. I'm saying they will okay. because because they owe they owe 50 trillion dollars to each other. Okay. That's the euro dollar debt. Okay. They owe it to each other. They don't owe it to the United States. Right. So if that loses value, they're losing value in their assets. How does that not punish them? 
punish whom? The holders of those bonds or those loans. It punishes the whole world. That's, uh, that's exactly. the second great so, 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 okay. So, and in that scenario, which direction does the dollar go versus other currencies? Uh, well, at that point, at that point, you are talking about something closer to a dollar collapse. But in the, right now, before it collapses, which way does it go? Right now, the dollar is getting stronger. Which way will it go if the if those loans collapse and they, there's a they default on them? It um, it goes higher, Jim. The dollar goes higher in a dollar squeeze and a credit contraction. The dollar goes higher. Well, you're not, you're not distinguishing between nominal and real terms. The dollar could be higher in real terms. Versus other currencies, which well, way does it go? Well, you get into a Versus other currencies, which way does it go? Well, the other, they're all in the same boat. I, which I, way? No. no there's, there's, there's no world. Now, answer the question. There's no world where the dollar is you know, crashing and everyone says, hey, get me some euros. They're all going to crash together. Which way does the dollar go versus the euro and the yen and the yuan in the scenario? Well, why don't you ask the real question? Which way does the dollar go relative to gold? This is the we'll world get to of that. We'll no, get, well, to we'll that. get to it right now. This is the world of five thousand dollar gold. In other words, it's impossible for every okay. currency to devalue against every other currency at the same time. That's the math. Which is exactly why the that's dollar a will rise. Which is exactly why that's the dollar will rise. That's a mathematical impossibility. Okay, so so now, uh, Brent, in light of of that, just so the folks at home saw the context. I thought the point, and so maybe I just misunderstood. I thought you were trying to argue that Bob and Jim, no, you guys aren't thinking this through. Let's suppose investors around the world did start getting worried about U.S. debt level. They see the CBO report and whatever. And so they start trying to get out of dollars or sorry, get out of treasuries to be more accurate. And then that starts to make uh, the yield on treasuries drifting upward. But then that causes problems given how much Euro dollar debt there is and then that causes a crisis the dollar strengthens and so uh you, the dollar can't forfeit its status as world reserve currency because even in the process that you guys are talking about there's forces that would push it back and and put it back up on put the dollar back up on top that's, that's what i right. thought you were saying is is that <clears throat> that is that is my okay. belief i i do not so because we live in a system where it's, it's a debt-based monetary system. So the money that exists, 99% of it has been loaned into existence. So that the in, in that process, to, to de so and not only is there huge dollar debts inside the United States, there's even more dollar debt outside the United States that is owed by non-U.S. entities, and they owe that to other non-U.S. entities. So it's not that they owe that all to the United States. And so in a debt-based monetary system, if you're go in a dollar debt-based monetary system, which is what we have, de-dollarization is the same thing as deleveraging. And when you deleverage, that's typically a painful process. And when you deleverage, that typically sees the underlying currency rise in value. Um, and... That, that is just real. That's what a credit contraction is. Whenever you see a recession or some kind of a crisis, it's because money is no longer circulating and credit is no longer being extended. And everybody is scrambling for the, for the few dollars that still exist. And when a loan gets defaulted on, that means that the demand for that amount of money is now gone. But it also means that supply has collapsed because, you know, the system is, is loaned into existence off of the collateral. So as, as credit contracts there is le and, and asset prices start to fall, the base off of which new loans are made starts to contract. And, then, and that's what happened in 2008. That's what happened in 2000, it's what happened in 2008, and it's what happened in 2020 with COVID, is that money stopped circulating, loans started to get, not just loans, but, you know, you know, overnight repo and, you know, money market funds started to fail and could, because you have a scramble for collateral. Um, because there's, again, the monetary base is only about $5 trillion. And everything else, all the other money, all the other monetary aggregates are loaned into existence. And so if, if, if the money that's loaned into existence no longer circulates, all of that demand – okay, this is where it starts to get a little confusing. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to pause here because I want to make sure people get this. 
a lot of times when you when you see monetary aggregates, you'll see the monetary base, then you'll see like M1, M2, M3, and then they'll start using like securitized debt, et cetera, et cetera. The monetary base is the reserves at the Fed and currency and coins in circulation. <coughs> Excuse me. That is the only money that actually quote unquote exists. <laughs> Everything else is loaned into existence off of that money as the base. So while if you look at M2, that is often characterized as money supply, and it is, but it's also demand. It's demand on the monetary base. So in a situation where that M2 is no longer circulating, people are no longer going on vacation, they're no longer buying that refrigerator, they're no longer putting gas in their car, and you start to have a contraction, that monetary base that or that that M2 is now scrambling to get their hands on the monetary base. That's what a credit contraction is. That's a bank run, right? That's when everybody shows up to pull their money out of the bank on the same day, but the bank doesn't have all the money in there because they've they've made loans in excess of the reserves or they've made loans in excess of the base money. And so what we had in 2000, what we had in 2008 and what we had in 2020 was a global bank run on the U.S. dollar. And as people are scrambling for dollars, they're selling everything they can, not what they want to, they're selling everything that they can to get their hands on dollar liquidity. And I think that's what would happen, and that's the point I was trying to get across to Jim. If the rest of the world starts defaulting on their dollar debts, then assets are going to start disappearing as well. And then you're going to get back to this bank run scenario where everybody starts selling everything just to get the dollars. And you're going to see the dollar rise very dramatically, not just versus other currencies, but probably against different assets as well. Okay. I think I followed that logic. So here, let me just take a moment, Brent, and and spell out something and have you react to it. So I think the the biggest or the the way to isolate the dis, the difference in perspectives that we're having on this, it, I, I think I largely agree with what you said. And so yeah, if for other reasons people were scrambling, they wanted to get their hands on you know base money, there there were panic for certain reasons, a rush to you know more actual like legal tender U.S. money, not just well that commercial bank says they owe me the money right. basically, but no, I right. want to have hundred dollar bills or what what have you. I agree with everything you're just saying there. And yes, if for some reason right now, you know, some firm in Germany owes a million US dollars to some pension fund in Germany and that German firm is having difficulty coming up with the USD, you know, maybe because their business is, is running euros and the, the euro falls against the dollar. So now it's, it's tough for them to come up with this USD that contractually they owe so they default, and then it causes a cascade effect. Now that pension fund thought we had a million USD, and now that, you know, we take a haircut or what have you, it cascades through the system. I get all that. The the more modest point I'm making, though, is I think I've seen, like, you know, what you were doing with, with Jim in that debate, and then I know George Gammon's written up some things, and on Twitter he has a lot of, you know, thought experiments, and I'll link folks if I can. Uh, George has a, a, a the mother of all blog posts on this. I don't know if it's going to be live yeah. by the time. Uh, I, I think you've seen it too, right, Brent? Um, you sent it to me last night. Yeah, yeah, yeah same here. Okay, so yeah, hopefully, yeah. folks, by the time this episode posts, you know, it'll be available for public consumption, and we can put it up there. So my my big picture issue is that may happen, you know, in practice in the real world. I'm not denying that, but conceptually, I I think we can easily imagine a scenario where if everything else were fine, and the one like sort of force that we wanted to study the impact of as economists, you know, modeling this in a thought experiment is just what if people around the world, foreigners decided they wanted to reduce their exposure to us dollar assets. I don't see why that would cause defaults. So it's, it's not like the start of the analysis is not, okay, we have an original equilibrium and now suppose people start defaulting on their dollar debts. It's the other way around that people who right now have dollar assets, foreigners, decide, you know what, I want to diversify out of it. Right now we have 13% of our portfolio in treasuries. I want to bring that down to 5% over the next couple of years. And I don't see why that process would involve defaults at all. I, I think the dollar would, would fall against well, other I, currencies in that yeah. scenario. 
So, so I hear what you're saying here, and I actually listened to your episode, whether mm-hmm. it was yesterday or a week ago, and so I know I, I understand the points you're making. So let, let me let me try to address it this way. If it's done a little bit at a time, and it's done by a minority of the participants in the world, then that could absolutely happen. And so what we could have is we could have a situation where the dollar DXY goes to it's at like 103 now, let's say it goes to 95 over the next two or three years. And the euro and the yen rise uh, versus the dollar a little bit as a result of that. And, you know, monetary authorities around the world, you know, they, they whenever things start to, you know, get out of control, they, they put some new facility in place. And, and the, the global economy just kind of lurches along or just kind of grinds along for the next two or three years. I, I think that I think what you're describing can happen. But what I don't think can happen is on a systematic wide basis for the rest of the world to stop using dollars and transition to a new currency without what I'm describing happening. And, and here's, here's why. Because if one or two people do it, it's no big deal as long as in the aggregate more people are not doing it. So what I mean by that is you may, be, you may have heard this term or your listeners may have heard this term, you know, you can't taper a Ponzi. Right? You can't taper a Ponzi system because it's predicated on growth. Well, in, a, in a, a debt-based monetary system, because it has interest attached to it, because loan, money is loaned into existence, because loans have interest attached to it, there is never, ever enough money to pay off all the debt. There will always be more debt than there is money. Um, and so the system has to grow. It has to expand. Now, it can contract for a short period of time, a couple months, maybe even a year. But the reason that you always see central bankers come in and put new collateral in the system or do bailouts or do stimulus or do QE, whatever it is, the reason they do that is because the system cannot go into a reverse gear for a, for a sustained period of time without eventually hitting what we were talking about before about a, a credit contraction. It can happen for short periods of time and it can, you know, one group can be, one group can be de-dollarizing or deleveraging while another group is increasing leverage. But overall, this, in the system itself, the system must grow. It, it, it's an exponential system. And, the, the, it, and anything that grows and anything that always grows will eventually, you know, have that exponential curve where it just goes straight up. And then that's when crashes happen because exponential curves never always continue going up. They always eventually roll over and then you get this, this big disaster. So, um, but I, I think to your, to your, the example you were using in the, in the episode that I watched previous to this and then what I think you were just saying now, isn't it possible that, let's say that Europe as a whole starts to de-dollarize over the next two or three years and they make some progress doing that. If the rest of the world does that as well, then I think it will lead to what I was describing. And the reason, here's the, here's the reason why, is because if you are using less dollars, then there is going to be less demand for dollars. If there's less demand for dollars, then the treasury is probably going to have to have higher interest rates to attract the people to buy the dollars, right? And all this euro dollar debt already exists. So even if going forward, entities were to no longer use dollars going forward, all of that dollar debt that they've used previously still exists. It doesn't just go away. And now if, if, if dollars are used less going forward, that means there will be less dollars circulating. If there are less dollars circulating and interest rates are now higher in order to attract the, the, the less dollars, now the rest of the world has all this euro dollar debt that they have to pay off. There's fewer dollars to access to get it, and the interest rate is making them even harder to get. So that then, I think, will lead to the defaults that I'm talking about. So I think what you're describing can happen for a few months, for a few years, but, it, but I do not think that that can – I don't think what you're describing can successfully transition from the dollar being the global reserve currency to a different currency – being the global reserve currency. I think in that process, while what you're describing might last for a few months or a few years, to ultimately get to the de-dollarized area, I think would have to go through the volatility that I'm, I'm describing. 
Okay, so I apologize, folks. Uh, it's what Brett and I are quibbling about here. I think is critical to the debate. So it that's is. Why I, it, I wanna, it really is. It really is. I don't want to this, go the, over this. This is the heart of it. Yeah, this is the heart of it. And so I'm going to take some time. I might try like a couple different approaches here. The point here is not to emerge and one of us is going to be the victor and one one's not. No. Um, I just want to make sure we, we grapple with this because I, I think there's a subtle um, conflation that might be going. Again, it doesn't mean you're wrong. It just means I think there's things we've got to tease out here. So um, if, interest, if, if U.S. interest rates rise because the Fed is tightening, then I totally get what you're talking about. And then that causes a ripple effect through the system. It's harder. The people that owe dollars, it's, it's now it's more expensive for them to get their hands on it. And so, you know, they could cause a wave of defaults and it's a vicious downward cycle. I get that. But I think if, if the reason for the rise in U.S. interest rates is because the world as a whole is trying to reduce its holdings of treasuries and so the, you know, the equilibrium price has to rise to get somebody to be willing to hold it, then I, I think it's easier to pay it off. So let me start with this analogy. First, Brent, you know, tell me, do you agree in the analogy I'm going to give you that my logic works and then it's just you disagree with applying it to the euro dollar system right. or if you just think, no, even in my analogy, works. So the analogy is let's think about cigarettes. Okay. And so imagine we're just focused on the U S right now. And maybe it's a, you know, permit a, a town somewhere where there are people around big and there's lots of people and they use the cigarettes as money. And a lot of people owe other people debt denominated in cigarettes, you know, like, Oh yeah, yeah. I owe Jim 20 cigarettes, whatever. And now in that environment, imagine there's a widespread you know, public health campaign and a lot of people who were previously smokers realize, you know what, I don't want to, I either want to cut back or I'm going to go cold turkey. And so the demand for buying cigarettes drops. So I want to say, if you're asking me as an economist, what happens to that hypothetical, you know, sort of barter system where there was a lot of debt denominated cigarettes, if all of a sudden the demand to buy cigarettes drops, I would say, okay, well, other things equal, you know, the market prices of a carton of cigarettes or a pack of cigarettes goes down. Ultimately, the price of tobacco goes down. You know, farmers end up planting less or whatever. But for somebody, a given person who owed, you know, 100 cartons of cigarettes to my landlord or something, it becomes easier to pay that debt off because in general, the price of cigarettes has dropped. So if I owe cigarettes to somebody now, it's actually easier to pay that off. The, the the people who held the assets, they might feel poorer, but there's no reason that the general, if, if the thing causing the change is not a financial crisis, but just everything was fine and now people just, their preferences for smoking changed and that's what the disturbance is, I would say you, you wouldn't expect a wave of defaults on cigarette debt. In fact, you'd expect the opposite. The default rate would be lower because in the new equilibrium, it's easier to get your hands on cigarettes because not as many people want them now. So are you okay with that analysis there? Or even there, you think that's not how it would play out? I understand the analogy. I, in my opinion, you're, you're missing one factor. Okay. And that is that in, in, in your analogy, you're equating cigarettes to kind of a consumer good rather than money. If, if, if you were, but if, 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 if in your analogy, you're saying that cigarettes are money, are, in your analogy, are you saying cigarettes are money, or it's just a consumer good that people have decided to no longer purchase? Because um, to me, it, to me, it's a bi- it, it, it makes a big difference in my opinion. I was being agnostic on it. If so, why don't you? Yeah. If so, you, if, so, so are you stipulating so if they were consumer goods, it would be okay. my analysis works? But you're saying if that's the money they used, it wouldn't work. Yes, that's what I'm saying. Okay, and, and the, or. or I think if it was a consumer good, it would be much more likely to work. Whereas with with it being the currency of the realm, so to speak, yeah. I don't think it works. And here and here's why: um, what has what has what has happened in in that scenario? Let's say that you let's say I owe you five packs of cigarettes, mm-hmm. right? So you 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 are holding my debt. Yep, I owe it to you. But then. You know, you might need liquidity before I give you the five packs of cigarettes. So a secondary market develops where you can sell those five packs of cigarettes for four four point nine five five packs of cigarettes to somebody else. So and and that you know it's like it's like script or whatever you want to call it, right? Mm-hmm. It's it's a second. Okay. If the if the if people stop smoking and 
the price of cigarettes falls, your asset also falls. It's not just the demand that's falling, the supply is falling. Because the supply, <laughs> the, 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 it, when, when, the, when the cigarettes are the money, if cigarettes are evaporating or becoming less, volu- the volume of cigarettes is falling, then the volume of money is falling. And the volume of money falling is deflationary, right? If there's not enough money to go around, then prices fall. I mean, that's, that's what a recession is, is when money no longer circulates, either because people are hoarding it or because the value of it's falling or whatever. If, if there's less money circulating, there's less money circulating, but the value of the debt is still there. It, 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 are, are you seeing the distinction between uh, the money and it? And a consumer good? Yes. So in my opinion, if people stopped smoking, cigarettes would circulate in fewer supply. Like the supply of cigarettes in circulation would drop. Yeah. But all of the cigarettes that have been loaned into existence previous to that time period, all of that cigarette debt still exists. So in other words, let's pretend there's only a hundred cigarettes. But because we loan more cigarettes into existence, there's a thousand cigarettes loaned into existence. But there's only a hundred actual of them, right, that actually mm. exist physically. If, if people stop smoking less and, and it, they don't circulate as much, then it's going to be hard to service that 10,000 or a million, whatever, a thousand, 10,000, a million, whatever the, the, the total supply of cigarettes is, it's going to be harder to service that debt because the cigarettes are no longer circulating, or at least the number of cigarettes circulating has dropped. Think, think of it this way. Maybe, maybe I'm not explaining this correctly, but if you have a million dollars of debt and you have $100,000 to service that debt, it's not so bad, but if but if you now but if you lose your job that pays you a hundred thousand dollars, and now you only have ten thousand dollars, it's much harder to service the debt on the million dollars with ten thousand than with a hundred thousand. So, if in other words, if the cigarettes go from a hundred thousand to ten thousand, but that million dollars, that million cigarettes or that million dollar debt still exists, it's harder to service that debt. And that's why I think it's a difference if it's the money or if it's just a consumer product. Um, I don't think that there is a way, when money is loaned into existence, the only way to get around this is if the, is if the powers that be prints more cigarettes. If they, if they were to print enough cigarettes to replace all the debt, then, you would, then the cigarettes would lose value because there would be plenty of cigarettes in existence, right? Mm-hmm. So, if, if, so if, if we bring this back to, to, to the monetary system, if the Fed physically printed, let, let, let's try to keep it simple. <laughs> I know it's, we owe 30 trillion, right? Or whatever mm-hmm. the number is. But, there, but remember, there's only 5 trillion in the monetary base. And they, but rather than do QE, if they actually printed 30 trillion physical dollars, and handed them out, then those dollars, each individual dollar would lose value and they could pay off all that debt, right? But when, you, when, you, when you're replacing debt with more debt, the demand is still there. Does that make sense? Yes. Okay, so I, th- I, it, I, think, I think where you and I disagree is that On a, on, an, on a portion of the society or on a portion of the economy, I agree what you say could happen could happen. But on a systemic-wide basis, I don't think you can deleverage without the dollar going higher. Okay. I get the distinction you're making. Let, let me, again, yeah. folks, this is the whole point of having Brent on here for this time. Yeah. So we're going to go through this. Let me take another pass. No problem. Not to say one person's right. I just want you to see... <laughs> Yeah. Let me just spell it out a little more. And right. I, I know this is kind of silly. For, we talk about cigarettes, no, no, but no, this it, is, it helps this is, this to, to, yeah, this to why, change it. This, right. is, this is why I came on here, so we yes. can do this. Yep. So, okay. 
Imagine the original, suppose we're in an original equilibrium where the, the farmers are growing a certain amount of tobacco and a million cigarettes are getting produced every month with this community that we're talking about, okay? Yep. And there's an outstanding existing debt of you know various people in the community owe other people money denominated in cigarettes um, such that the total debt is, uh, let's do it half and half. Um, so 500,000. So let's say it's 5 million and it's 10% per month or a very high interest rate just to keep, keep the numbers. Yep. Okay. Yep. So every month, if the total face value of the debt, you know, the, the principal stays the same and imagine, you know, the people who own that as the asset, just keep rolling it over and they're just enjoying yep. the interest. Okay. Right. So every month, so every month, a million cigarettes gets physically produced Half goes, people go into the, you know, into the shops and they buy it and just smoke it for their own personal use. Yep. And then the other half gets diverted. The, the people acquire it, the debtors, and they get that because they owe it as interest payments on the debt they owe, right? So their, their principal stays the same. They're just every month like paying the finance charges on their debt is the way to yep. think of it. Okay. And if you say, well, how, what's the money? You can use the cigarettes, you know, how do the people... They're doing t- chores for the farmers. They're like painting their barns and watching the cattle and whatever. And that's what the services they provide in order for the farmers to hand over a million cigarettes every month uh, from the tobacco and they, they roll the cigarettes inside or whatever. Okay. So now I want to say, all right, that's a system that's it's chugging along. If all of a sudden the, um, the people who are just every month getting, you know, performing chores for, chores for the farmers to get cigarettes just to smoke. You know, they don't owe any cigarettes to anybody. They just want to smoke. If now all of a sudden all those people stop doing it because, oh my gosh, it causes cancer, I had no idea. Okay, so the demand, so 500,000 a month of that demand drops. So now going forward, I want to say it's going to be easier for the people who were doing chores for the farmers to get the cigarettes to just hand over because they owed it. If anything... The fact that now the the external demand, you know, another thing that, that those cigarettes had to get channeled into for people just to smoke and disappear goes away. And so now I would think, if anything, it's easier for those people, you know, as, as the as the amount of tobacco be. that needs to be planted, the amount of cigarettes that needs to be produced every month just to service the existing debt, you, you know, it's a smaller share of the total amount. And so I, I would think, you know, which... The, the, the land that is in cultivation for tobacco, of course, the farmers take the worst land out. And so, if anything, the price of a, a cigarette relative to how much work labor do I have to contribute to get the farmer to hand me a cigarette goes down, I would think. So there wouldn't need to be defaults. So, so I th- I, in, the, I in think, that little world, yeah. do you get what I'm saying? And does that make I, sense I to you? I do, uh, and that makes sense as long as – and this – this is why this. I'll tell you why I don't think it would work, but I'll mm-hmm. tell you why it makes sense. It makes sense if the farmer continued to produce the same amount of cigarettes as they did before, even though people are no longer demanding them, which I think is unlikely. So I think the the. What can I just it, stop it, you? Right, what, what, yeah, no, yeah. I I, del- I picked that to say they could cut yeah. it up to half. Uh, I'll, it, monthly output of cigarettes can is, can drop to five hundred thousand okay. because okay. before. Okay. Okay. 500,000 was getting smoked. So that wasn't being used for debt service. So I'm saying that that's, that accounts, you know, the, the, the drop in the consumer demand element is what accounts for that less. So yeah, production can fall, but I'm saying it's no harder for the, the debt awards to get cigarettes because now they're not, there's not as many people competing to get the cigarettes every month. In that scenario, let me think. So they're still producing half the amount. So there's, so there's, because the other half were getting smoked and disappearing anyway. Yes. So you're saying there's still the same amount of cigarettes in circulation, right? Yes. If the same amount of cigarettes are in circulation, then I, if the same amount of cigarettes are in circulation, then I would say price just stays even. If 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 fewer cigarettes are in circulation, I would say price rises. And if more cigarettes are in circulation, then I would say price drops. Okay. So, so yes, I was saying, yes, I agree yeah. with that. And if we assumed that, you know, there were no, yeah. so that's why I was bringing in, if you wanted to make it more realistic, yeah. is they took the land that was least suitable for tobacco and shifted into tomatoes or something. And yeah, then yeah. actually, even if production gets cut in half, you'd think unit costs would be low. But okay. So 
if you get it there, then I'm saying the analogy now to, okay, but what does that mean for the euro dollar? I'm saying right now people are holding cash balances, right? Like there's certain dollars like in their cash possession, like, you know, whether com commercial banks abroad have some literally in the vault or yeah. it reserves with the Fed or whatever. And so to me, that's the analog of what if the demand to smoke cigarettes goes down, right? So the people that are, so if the demand to hold dollars as foreigners drops somewhat, to me, that would free up some dollars that could be used to, to, for the flow of finance charges on the existing euro dollar debt. So I would think that would, the, the people who owe dollars to people, if the rest of the world in general doesn't want to hold as many dollars, wouldn't that make it easier if I'm scrambling to get dollars, if some of the people are releasing some of their holdings of it? It would, as long as there's still enough dollars to service all of the dollar debt. But the minute loan, there's not enough dollars, and as soon as there's not enough supply to service all the debt, then you get defaults. And defaults not only decrease demand, it dramatically decreases supply because of the leverage involved. Okay, so does yeah, that make I mean, sense? It, so, and, it, it and, makes and that's sense. Why I, and mm -hmm. that's why I think this can happen over short periods of time, and it can happen perhaps in a region, assuming the rest of the world is expanding. But you know, again, in, in a debt-based monetary system, if you have a credit contraction in a debt-based monetary system, because of the inherent leverage in a debt-based monetary system contracting supply what supply will contract more than demand in a contraction because of the interest in other okay. words if you had if you mm -hmm. had if you had loans that had no interest attached mm -hmm. it becomes much easier to solve because if there's no interest attached mm -hmm. then there's then there then there can be enough money and then there can be enough money to, 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 to pay off the debt. But if, if, if the system is always growing due to the interest, again, remember, in, in a, in a, on a, again, not just a, not just a small section of the system, but on a system-wide basis, there is never enough money to pay off the debt. I might have enough money to pay off my debts, right? You might have mm -hmm. enough money to pay off your debts. But everybody as a whole we do not have enough money to pay off everybody's debts because the, the, the debt, the money just doesn't exist. There is always more debt than there is money. Okay. I a hundred percent understand yeah. what your argument is. Yeah. That's why I was trying with the, with the cigarette thing. I was, cause I thought it was easier to conceptualize. So again, I was trying to show there whether or not you agree with this, that if the thing that's causing the, the monthly output of cigarettes to fall is the external demand for it, then yes, that the fact that, you know, uh, prima facie, you might look and see, Oh, gee, the monthly output of cigarettes went from a million down to 500,000. That's going to cause a, a squeeze, you know, a scramble for, for cigarettes. And, and the, the, but no, if, if it happened for the reason I said, again, the people who every month had been getting 500,000 cigarettes collectively to service their cigarette debt, would have no more difficulty doing it. If anything, it would be easier, I think, um, because they might be able to get better terms from the farmers who just saw half of their sales fall, so they might you know, be willing to sell the, the lower volume. Okay. And so likewise, I'm saying, let's put aside your interest point for a minute. I think you're even agreeing, right? If, if the interest rate were 0% on this outstanding Euro-dollar Euro debt, then the fact that one particular holder of it decided to just you know, let the debt mature off and then diversify it into euros or yen or something. Yeah, that demand for that dollar would go down and the supply would correspondingly shrink, but they, the two would cancel out. That, yeah, yeah the, I agree. The worldwide quantity yeah. of dollars yeah. broadly, can, M2 or whatever you want to use, yeah. would shrink. But if the thing driving that contraction was a decline in demand to hold dollars, there's no reason that for the other people who still want as many dollars as they did last week, there's no reason they would get pinched because the, you know, the, the supply would just be shrinking to match the reduced demand is my claim. But now you're saying, no, there's a complication there, Bob, because of the, the interest. Fact. That's right. And if, and if you, if you equate this, it, it gets so 
Anybody who's, I'll just say, anybody who's sitting there listening to this and is confused, don't feel bad. Because this, this, you can turn this stuff around in your head so easily. Yeah. <laughs> but again, in, in a debt, in a debt, this is why in a debt-based monetary system it gets so confusing, right? Because the money is lent into existence, so it, it isn't actually. It's 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 kind of a figment of our imagination, right? And and here, here's what I would say is, let's let's use a musical chairs analogy, right? So let's say let's, and let's use the chairs as the supply. So let's say there's five chairs in the middle of a room, and that equates to $5 trillion of base money that currently exists. And then those five people start loaning more money into existence. And those are the people, right? And so they make with this loan, they make that loan, and pretty soon there's 100 people, or let's say there's 20 people circulating around the five chairs, right? And as long as the music's playing, they keep circulating, right? And there's no problem. They can trade amongst themselves. They can do whatever they want because they're just passing, you know, promises back and forth to each other. But when the music stops, they've all got to actually get a chair, right? Now then the Euro dollar market, that is another room outside of this room. (laughs) The Euro dollar market doesn't even have any chairs. It's a reserveless system. If they want chairs, they got to come to the U.S. to get them. Other than, okay, other than the physical U.S. dollar bills that exist outside the United States, there are no chairs outside of this room. And the only entity that can create more chairs is the U.S. Treasury and the Federal Reserve. They can create more chairs. But, the, but the, the, now let's pretend. Now let's, let's pretend we, we play that game for a day. And then at the end of the day, say, okay, everybody go home. Come back tomorrow, 8 o'clock tomorrow morning, we're going to play the game again. So now tomorrow we walk in, and where the chairs were, the chair, there's, there, there's a curtain around the chairs. And they say, you know what? The chairs are still in there, but you can't actually see them. And now the music starts, and everybody starts circulating, right? Thing is, and it, the, the game works. It works as long as everybody believes that there's still chairs behind those curtains. The game works. In other words, you don't even really need the chairs. You don't even really need the reserves as long as everybody believes that they're there. And that's kind of what the euro dollar market is. The euro dollar market doesn't really have any reserves, but they're just circulating around the United States because they know in the United States, that's where the chairs are. And when the music stops, that's where they have to go to get more of them. That's why the Fed has swap lines. That's why the Fed has different programs. People can, you know, put, you can, you can put your, you can deposit your treasury there. We'll give you cash. So, because that's the, that's the entity that can create more chairs. But, and again, as long as the music is playing, it's no problem. But when, when the music stops, or, or if they say, you know what, we are no longer going to use chairs. Let's use this example. Let's say we're circulating around these curtains and the euro dollar market is circulating outside of this room in another room. And then they come along and they say, you know what? We're changing the chairs. We're no longer going to use chairs. We're going to use beanbags, right? My guess, my belief is that in that, tra- even if 90% of the people say, you know what? That's fine. We'll just use beanbags. My belief is that there will be at least enough people say, hold on a second. Do I want beanbags? And wait a minute, are the chairs even really in, in there? And I think that period of time, even though it might be a short period of time, will cause enough chaos that people will scramble for the chairs and the value of each individual chair will rise. And that's the squeeze on the dollar. So I'm not saying that a, 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 a change can't happen. I'm just saying there has been so much money lent into existence that the demand for dollars is so high that in any kind of an adverse scenario or some kind of a change that not everybody's 100% on board with, there's going to be a scramble for the chairs. Now, the scramble for the chairs might cause enough chaos that they create an entirely new game and an entirely new system. And maybe maybe gold is that system, maybe some other, maybe they create some new currency that's backed by oil and other commodities or whatever it is. 
Or maybe they just come up with some new fiat currency and they've wiped out all the debt. Again, I don't know, but my, 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 my belief is that in that transition, that the, those individual, the, the value of those individual chairs will rise. Um, and I, and I, think, I, I, th- I think what you're saying is if, if, if the people outside the room stopped circulating, that would create that that would decrease the amount of demand for the chairs and then if the 20 people surrounding those chairs if that fell to 10 that takes some of the pressure off of the value of those chairs to rise and it's my belief i think what you are describing and i don't want to put words in your mouth but i think what you're describing is what ray dalio would call a beautiful deleveraging where if it's done a little bit at a time, slowly by slowly, you wean the, the drug addict off of the heroin and just reduce the amount every day for five years. Eventually, they're free of the drug, and we, you know, we've deleveraged, and we haven't felt any pain. And I guess what it comes down to me is that my belief is that it is not only is the, is the beautiful deleveraging unlikely, but it's very close to impossible. Nothing is impossible. Right. I always say this. Anything can happen, but this idea of a beautiful delivering, especially in a world which is no longer cooperating the way it was 10 or 20 years ago, I think it becomes even less likely. And I don't know if I've talked about this before. I don't know if you've, you, you, you've come across this, but it is my belief that the Fed, the U.S., the Fed, the Treasury, not only do they have the ability, but they have the willingness to use the dollar as a weapon, monetary policy as a weapon. Um, I think the raising of interest rates is partly, I think that's part of why they have raised interest rates, to solidify the United States you know, place on top of the mountain or however you want to describe that. Um, because by raising interest rates and squeezing um, you know, economies or countries economically, they can put pressure on people that is in many ways just as effective as sanctions or military action or whatever it is. Um, you know, because if you put somebody in a compromised situation, but then you also provide them the lifeline to get out of it, you know, it's, again, I, I don't really like the system the way it is, but I, I, I think this is the way it is. Okay, great. And so yeah, I totally get where you're coming from and I appreciate all that. And just to tie what you just said back to the, you know, the silly cigarette example, I agree in that scenario, we had the original equilibrium where, you know, there's a, a million produced a month, 500,000 gets diverted right into, you know, direct consumption and the other gets used to service debts. That if the reason, if now output falls to 500,000 because the farmers just get together and say, you know what, why don't we just restrict our planting and, and sell fewer cigarettes and we'll raise prices, then that would cause a crunch. Definitely. Right. People would right. then, you know, the right. debtors would have trouble because now the, you know, the, the, the multiple competing uses for those cigarettes. Now there's yeah. fewer cigarettes going to, okay. Exactly. So that, that's the, the, the distinction. So I that, totally, that would, yeah. that, that would be the farmers using production as a weapon, right? Right. 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 Yeah. So anyway, so, yeah. that was all I was trying yeah. to lay is that it matter to say the quantity of cigarettes, new cigarettes coming out of the market every month goes down does that mean there's a crunch or not for the cigarette denominated debt? My, my big point was just, it depends what caused the production. If it's because demand fell, then no, it wouldn't. But if it's because the suppliers deliberately cut back, then yeah, clearly that would, you know, cause a, a crunch is, is my point. Yeah. And so, and I, I, yeah, I mean, yeah. Okay. Yeah. So as we round up here, uh, and by the way, folks, there's not time to get into it now. I, is a theoretical <laughs> point, I have written at Mises.org years ago on this issue of the fact that, you know, oh, I borrowed $1,000, but I owe 1100 to the bank next year. There's not enough money to go around. I have written on that that I, I think there's a way you, you know, the, the accounting's not impossible, but that's kind of will take us a field. So as we just conclude here, Brent, just I'm curious, your overall view so it's, it's maybe is ironic. I am not, put it this way, suppose there's a, a sovereign debt crisis two years from now and the dollar strengthens against other major currencies. I hope people aren't going to say, oh, Murphy, you idiot. 
I'm again, that's consistent <laughs> with what I've been warning about. You know what I mean? Like that, that yeah, yeah. I wouldn't say, oh, geez, I didn't see that coming. I would say, yeah, you know, we've, I've been yeah. telling people governments around the world are running up their debts. This is not going to end well. So just yeah. to be clear, I am not denying that possibility. All I'm saying, though, is I think, you know, for folks at home, we originally, the zero head debate, we had picked 2040 as the year, and then we decided that wouldn't be as provocative. Who cares? So we, we pulled it up. So I am very confident in saying, I think in the year 2040, the U.S. is not going to is not going to be considered the world's superpower. That um, and the dollar likewise will shrink in importance. How do you feel about that, Brett? Do you have a strong opinion one way or the other on that? I th- I think if you are right, it will be because the U.S. dollar went to an all time high between now and then, and the whole mm-hmm. system got reset. Okay. Okay. So again, my, my mm-hmm. it, it, the the ultimate chapter of my thesis is the U.S. dollar losing global reserve currency status, either due to the fact that we have some kind of a plaza accord, or we have mm-hmm. some kind of a mass conflict, or whatever it is. But ultimately, I think the dollar gets valued much much lower because I think it will okay. have to be. But okay. I equally believe that the penultimate chapter. <laughs> is the dollar going back to its all-time high. I think I got it now. So, Brent, let me repeat this back to you, and you tell me yep. if, if I've got it. So you're not saying, hey, it, the U.S. dollar's on top forever. There's no, there's no, oh, you're not no. saying that. No, of course. You, you know global empires come and go. The, you know, Absolutely. Pound sterling used to be it. Now it's not. Okay. But your point when somebody like Jim Rickards or me is saying that, oh, this is going to come a lot faster than a lot of people on Wall Street think, you're saying, guys, it can't be that fast because before we get there, there's going to be an intermediate period where that's the dollar right. sharply strengthens against everything, and that's going to sort of re, you know reassert its preeminence. And is, is am I getting that? So you're that's, just that's exactly okay. right. You got it. Okay. All right. Okay. Well, that's good. And you know, I guess ironically, we really are just disagreeing about the timing of these things in one sense. <laughs> that's, usually, that's usually what right. it comes down to, and right? Because yeah, timing's yeah. important. And your yeah. point that you made at the opening of the zero hedge debate was the time, uh, you know, me being sort of a theoretical abstract economist just teaching first principles to people like, here's a framework that you can kind of think through these. If I'm off by the timing, I can just say, well, assume a can opener, you know, because I'm an academic economist, whereas you advising clients with their money, timing yeah. is, is more critical. So anyway, that it just it partly reflects. Yeah, and, you know, I want to say something before we, before we wrap up here. Uh, and if, for anybody who didn't see the zero hedge debate, um, at the very beginning, I said that, you know, I kind of started trying to figure all this stuff out for myself about a little over 15 years ago. And one of the first people I came across was you and the Austrian school. And it was absolutely fundamental in my learning the Austrian school kind of principles, first principles, and hearing you explain things from that perspective was kind of instrumental in me kind of developing a fundamental understanding of, of how things work or how things could work or economics, you know, supply, demand, all that kind of stuff. And so, you know, d- despite the fact that we may disagree here, um, that doesn't mean that your point of view is not important. Um, it's, it's actually fundamental to, to my understanding of how things work. So I appreciate, uh, I appreciate the fact that you were on the other side and I appreciate you inviting me on to talk about it. Sure. So it's sort of like Batman saying to the Joker, you created me. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. We'll have to, we'll have to work the Batman analogy into this yeah, as well. Yeah. Okay. No. Well, that's a, a fun, lighthearted note to end on. Um, so folks, my guest has been Brent Johnson of Santiago Capital. Brent, uh, thank you. This this was very enjoyable, and I think, at the very least, we gave the viewers a crisper delineation of the different frameworks. I hope so. Happy to do it again if you ever want to do it. Okay, thank you. And thanks, everyone, for tuning in. We appreciate that you're concerned about these subtle matters. We'll see you next time. Check back next week for a new episode of the Human Action Podcast. In the meantime, you can find more content like this on Mises.org. Mises.org.